0: For the past couple of weeks we've been in Daniel And we said that looking back at our previous study on Revelations That Daniel's really a great companion book to go along with Revelations It's great for a couple different reasons First, when you look back at uh, Revelations We get to see that God is in control That He's got this, right? We don't need to worry about all these things He's in control We're just supposed to be faithful witnesses Even in the face of death We're supposed to be a faithful witness And we're to be an overcomer, and we're to overcome these fiery trials. And we get to see this take place and really unfold really nicely in the book of Daniel, through Daniel and his three friends. The first week we were in Daniel, we really just got through Daniel 1, 1 through 8, and kind of set the political season for what was going on at the time the book was written. We saw that Jeremiah had spent about 23 years prior to this prophesying about what's going to happen if people don't turn back to God. Well, obviously they didn't turn back to God, and Nebuchadnezzar came in in about 605 B.C., And came against Israel and took a bunch of people captive. And Daniel's one of these people taken captive. And then we saw why some of these younger people, because Daniel's about 15 at this time, why he would take some of these younger folks and then try to put them in positions of power. The idea here is he's going to take some of these people and put them in charge of the other Hebrews. They're going to be forced to serve these other Israelites in the kingdom of Babylon. Again, Daniel's about 15 years old. He's good looking, very smart, very capable person. He's probably castrated at this point. And then he sent through about three years of study to learn the Chaldean culture, the Chaldean language. And he's just inundated with everything the Chaldeans do all around him. He's away from home, really probably for the first time for an extensive period, and yet he stays faithful to his culture. He's surrounded by some of the most technological and scientific achievements of the time inside of Babylon. You remember the uh, hanging gardens of Babylon were created under Nebuchadnezzar, more than likely. And he had this awesome palace that he built, these awesome engineering feats that Daniel gets to see every day. It's the first city in the world to reach over a population of 200,000 people. So all of this stuff going on around him for a guy who just came out of Jerusalem, and he's exposed to all this for the first time. To Daniel, this would have all been really amazing, probably quite overwhelming, actually. And we saw that despite his young age and being renamed from Daniel, which is, uh, means God is my judge, and he's now named Belteshazzar, which is servant of Baal. And being away from home in this amazing place with the ability to, to have just about anything he'd like to have, with no one to tell him any different, he does not lose faith. In fact, he knows the prophecy of Jeremiah. He's read it. And he knows that they're probably going to be away from home for 70 years. He's probably not going to live through it. Or if he does, there's not going to be a lot of time left at the end of his life for him to return back to his homeland. So he's either going to die in captivity or at a minimum have little time left on the earth by the time he's released. He doesn't get angry with God about this. He doesn't act like a victim. He doesn't lose faith in God. Instead, he takes all these fiery trials and overcomes. When things got tough for him... He still had a choice. He recognized that choice. When things are difficult in our own lives, there's really three things that happen. We give up, or we give in to the temptations around us, or we choose to stay committed and keep going the way Daniel and his three friends did. We also saw that Daniel was really good at this appeals process when he's being told to do something that he knows he shouldn't be doing. We saw this uh, with the food that they were trying to get him to eat. And probably at that time, either that food was used in some kind of idol worship. Or it's something against the Levitican laws that they weren't supposed to eat that type of food. So he appealed that, and he won that appeal. The same with the king's wine. He didn't want to live in that kind of situation. It would have just been really overindulgence, and he didn't want to live like that. So again, he appeals, and he's really skilled at this appeals process to prevent him from breaking the king's laws. And then last week, Tim completed Daniel 1 and moved into Daniel 2. This week we're going to go into chapter 3. And I wanted to do this to have a little bit further discussion of the point brought up a couple weeks ago too about how we're supposed to obey law and what Paul talks about in Romans 13 and how it's going to conflict dramatically with what we see today in Daniel 3. Daniel 3 isn't going to really focus much on Daniel. In fact, he's not in there at all. It's just going to be about his three friends that we see. So we're going to start Daniel 3. And this happens right after Daniel interprets the dream, of the first dream of Nebuchadnezzar's. So let's start in chapter 2, though, in verse 46. Daniel chapter 2, verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face, prostrate, prostrate before Daniel, and commanded that they should present an offering of incense to him. The king answered Daniel and said, Truly, your God is the God of gods, the Lord of kings, and the reveal, revealer of secrets, since you should reveal this secret." Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many gifts. And he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. Also, Daniel petitioned the king and set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel sat in the gate of the king. Daniel interprets the king's dream in in chapter 2, and that's what chapter 2 is all about. Now he's being promoted. So Nebuchadnezzar is introduced to God through Daniel, and he recognizes that God is the real deal. Daniel's God, the God of Israel, is the real deal. He sees that because of the interpretation of the dream. So Daniel and his three buddies are promoted by Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's allowed to serve the king in the gate of the city. Now, if you recall, the gate of the city, this is where most of the uh, major decisions are made. The king didn't generally rule on every little thing. So people would come to the gate, and the person that sat in the gate of the city would make the judgments. They would uh, rule on some of the smaller conflicts between people and such, settle all these small disputes. So Daniel gets to sit in the gate of the city of Babylon. This would have been a position of great responsibility and great influence. What does Daniel do is he immediately petitions the king and says, Hey, what about my three buddies over here? I'd like to see them promoted too. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are set over affairs in the province of Babylon. So Daniel would have had the city of Babylon, and then out in the province would have been his three friends to make judgments and do some rulings out there. So it would be like Daniel in Washington, D.C., and then his three friends out in the state, something like that. So now let's move into chapter 3. And chapter 3, again, this is all about Daniel's three friends, his three buddies out there in the country or the province. So Daniel, Daniel chapter 3, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width was 6 cubits. He set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried out, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in the symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at the time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music, all people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So in the interpretation of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream from chapter 2, Daniel told him that another kingdom would replace his own. The king was probably at this point feeling a little insecure. So he goes out and he builds this giant statue of gold. And it's 60 cubits tall and 6 cubits wide. So that's about 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide. This would have been a giant statue. It was made to resemble the statue from the dream, but he also put it there to glorify himself. So I guess the next time you're feeling a little bit down on the dauber, just go create a giant statue of yourself and maybe you'll feel a little bit better to some degree. Nebuchadnezzar decides to have this great unveiling of this statue in the country and it's proclaimed that everybody must drop down to their knees and worship the statue whenever they hear all this music play on all these instruments listed in uh, three five there. If they fail to do so, they're going to get thrown into this fiery furnace and killed. This is no big deal for the Chaldeans, right? I mean, they, they are a polytheistic culture anyway. They worship several idols. So what's one more? No big deal. Every time they hear some music, they just pray to an idol. So Nebuchadnezzar puts a statue out there to remind the people... Who's in charge? Now, he has to be really coercive with his leadership style at this time. He's taken captives in from all over the place, but especially from Israel. So he's got all these foreigners living in his land. And now he's going to put the statue out there to remind them who's in charge. If people don't worship or follow his proclamation, they die. Obviously, there's a lot of great incentive here to follow this proclamation. Nobody wants to go in the firing furnace. Do or die kind of thing. In those days, kings or rulers would have several houses throughout their provinces where they would go and they would stay for a month here and a month there, and they would do that to remind the people there's still a presence here, to remind the people who's in charge. So it would have been kind of something like that, the statue out there to remind the people that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, is still the man. He's doing something probably similar there with that. So now let's look at what Daniel's three friends do with this situation. So Daniel 3, verse 8 Therefore, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. That's the uh, official greeting that they have to say every time, right? You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre in symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of the fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, and you fall down and worship the image which I have made good, but if you do not worship, you should be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your God, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. So here we have some Chaldeans coming forward to complain to the king that Shadrach, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not falling down and worshiping when the bells and whistles of the orchestra play. They're expected to conform to the rules of the king's proclamation, but they didn't. They violated the law, and the Chaldeans, who are probably a little put out because Daniel interpreted the dream that they were supposed to have interpreted, got a reward, and they didn't. And now they're trying to get back at them, so they're going to throw them under the bus. They play the king against the three very nicely, and probably just thinking about themselves and bumping them off to be able to move up that chain get rid of the competition for the king's favor. So the king calls the three believers to him and tells them that if they don't start to worship the statue right now, as soon as the orchestra plays, that they're going in the fiery furnace. They're going to be killed. So the three amigos tell the king, hey, we don't need to talk to you about this at all. If you decide to throw us in the furnace, our God can deliver us. And even if he doesn't, he's still going to take us away from you, from your hand, and we'll be saved by our God. We're still not going to worship your statue no matter what you do to us. So here you have probably the most powerful king on earth at that particular time telling you to worship like all the rest of the people are doing. Everyone around you is doing it. We have a figure of authority and a whole bunch of peer pressure from all the people around them just to do what they are told. Everyone else is doing it. Just follow along. Follow the law. As proclaimed by the king. They didn't know for sure God would save them. They didn't know God was going to intervene. They had faith. They had commitment to God. And their faith was demonstrated on the ultimate scale (laughs) here. They did this in the face of sacrificing their own lives. They showed what overcoming is all about. They're being faithful witnesses when they're faced with death. They're about to undergo the literal fiery trial for their own beliefs. How do we do when we're put under these intense pressures From the people around us, these cultural or societal norms that we deal with every day. Do we continue to walk in the Spirit, as Paul calls it, or do we drift towards the flesh? Most times, it's not even our lives on the line. It's usually our reputation or some kind of a social status or social standing or possibly even our job that we give up for our integrity and for our faith when we face trials that we are asked to overcome. But the three colleagues decided to disobey the king and disobey the law. So let's look at Romans where Paul talks about how we should obey the law and how important that is. So let's look at Romans 13. Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God. And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For the rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you all want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore... You must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. And Paul goes on to say, you know, love your neighbor and, and put on Christ throughout that chapter. But how do we know when we should be following the law of the land versus... The law of God. Are Daniel and his three friends giving us permission to disobey the law? The person put in charge is God's servant. He's put him there. And Nebuchadnezzar, in the beginning of Daniel, which even talks about Nebuchadnezzar, the Lord's servant. God is using Nebuchadnezzar to fulfill the prophecy. Well, to answer this, first we see that Daniel is all about the appeals process. So when things are maybe not the way they should be, we're supposed to appeal. Second, we see that the only time Daniel and his friends disobey the law of the king is when it comes into conflict with God's law. Daniel's compadres were being asked to violate the first two commandments, right? They're being forced to worship a god other than the one true god, and this other deity is an idol. So, for example, in the book of Daniel, we see that we should violate man's law when it goes against God's law. We should stand up for what God tells us to do despite the consequences. Those consequences may be social, they may be physical, or even family-related. If the law requires us to violate one of the Ten Commandments, or to not love the Lord with all our hearts and love our neighbors as ourselves, then we shouldn't follow it. The king's three counselors didn't give up. They didn't give in to the temptations, and they stayed committed to their faith. And to God's commandments. So now let's travel back to, in time to Daniel here. Where we see what happens with Daniel's friends. So in 3 verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. And the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in the army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent, and the furnace was exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. Look, he answered, I see four men, loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. So the three eunuchs are... Taken to the furnace, which is heated seven times more than it normally would have been. So the king's trying to make a statement here, right? He's making it extra hot for them. He's trying to show his subjects here that he is not to be disobeyed. The furnace is so hot that these guards that are throwing him in there combust, just moving the three men towards the furnace. They're just consumed by the heat immediately. Nebuchadnezzar notices that there aren't just three men running around inside the furnace now. There's four. The fourth is an angel, or what the king recognizes, as a godlike being. So it's pretty astonishing for him. We go into verse 26 and says, Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. And the satraps, administrators, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together, and they saw these men on whose body the fire had no power. The hair on their head was not singed. Nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. Nebuchadnezzar spoke, saying, Blessed be the Lord of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And they have frustrated the king's word and yielded their bodies, that they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree to any people, nation, and language which speaks anything amiss against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces and their houses shall be made an ash sheep, because there is no other god who can deliver like this. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So when this starts off in verse 26, obviously the furnace is cooled down at this point, as Nebuchadnezzar goes towards the furnace, comes up next to it, and he sees that not a single hair on their head has been singed by the furnace that caused the guards to combust just by walking near it. He then calls the three men servants of the Most High God. This is a big admission for the pagan king. We saw in chapter 2 he recognizes that hey, the God's probably real, but just one of many. And now he's recognizing that God is the Most High God. So now he's probably still thinking he's one of many, but now he is the God of gods. He's the real deal and calls him the Most High God and not just God. He's recognizing him as above all other gods. He then goes on to throw his coercive power behind God by saying, if anyone speaks out against the Hebrew God, they're going to be cut into pieces and their houses burned down. It's a pretty significant moment. It's a defining moment for Nebuchadnezzar, really. He recognizes that God is legit. What a significant emotional event it must have been for him to see this happen. He's seen an actual miracle in front of his own eyes, and an angel of God. He even goes on to promote the three men in the province of Babylon. So they come out of it looking pretty good. When we go through fiery trials, we're called to face them with faith and courage and overcome. And we see the example of this with these three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sometimes God's presence is more deeply felt in our trials, in some trials, than in any others. We can see in Isaiah 43, 1-3, says, But now, thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, and he who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire... You shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt for your ransom, Ethiopia and Seba in your place. When we don't feel God's presence in our fiery trials, it might just be we're not listening well enough. So when things in your life aren't going your way, good. When circumstances in life seem to be challenging your faith, good. When it seems the whole world is turned against you, embrace it and see it for what it is. See that it is an opportunity To remember that God is in control. When we remember that, our attitude becomes one of choice instead of victim. We have a better perspective. We start to ask questions like, what should I be learning right now instead of pitying ourselves? That attitude will in turn reflect in our actions. Now this works in reverse as well. When we recognize ourselves as having poor actions, it's usually a reflection of a really poor attitude. And when we have a really poor attitude, it's usually a reflection of who we believe is in control. Do I trust God or do I trust someone other than God? Do I believe God is in control or not? So poor actions are from poor attitude. And a poor attitude is from not trusting in God. Daniel's three friends trusted God and were overcomers of fiery trials, both figuratively and literally. Their attitude of faith and commitment was reflected in their actions of being martyrs, faithful witnesses. May we uphold their example in our own trials. So, as you look at this and say, what can be taken from Daniel, it's easy to read something and say, oh, that's a great story. But where do I see myself in it? And what we see is a story full of faith and commitment to obey God's law and do life right, to have the belief that God is in control, to have a better attitude about it, and then have actions that reflect that attitude and that belief. Heavenly Father, thank you for today and thank you for this awesome book to show us how to live our lives in faith despite the circumstances we are in. Please be with us this week as we encounter our own trials that we might be reminded to trust that you are in control so we will have a better attitude and our actions will be a reflection of our faith and trust in you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.